Hey, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Lift Big, Eat Big's new workout program, The Phalanx Method. Coach, powerlifter, strongman, and historian Brandon Morrison took a unique approach in his creation to this three-block, six-month-long effort. Using ancient sources and modern techniques, he was able to recreate the training of one of history's most destructive military forces, the phalanx. And that's not just the sales line either. This is only three days a week in the gym, and it's brutal. I've uh, competed in powerlifting, CrossFit, and spent way too much time doing brutal army PT. And this is the hardest thing I've ever done before. And uh, you can do it at a commercial gym or like me from your garage. Uh, He also includes little historical tidbits every week to keep you interested and to keep you hooked. If you want to challenge yourself or just try something new, Go to www.liftbigeatbig.com and enter the promo code DONKEY to get 15% off the Phalanx Method. Are you ready to become a warrior of oak and bronze? The long road leading to the house of Abir Qasim al-Janabi, the 14-year-old Iraqi girl that former American soldier Stephen Dale Green raped and killed one afternoon in 2006. He set her body on fire to destroy the evidence and murdered her parents and her six-year-old sister. This is now all that's left of her house. As punishment, Green will spend the rest of his life in prison without parole. But for Al-Janabi's neighbors, that fate is hardly harsh enough. He would have been proud had he been sentenced to death because honor is very precious and dear to us Iraqi women. The verdict is unjust. He must be sentenced to death as an example for the American soldiers who do such things. We have not seen any good from them ever since they have arrived here. Only assaults on Iraqi people. The sentence is not enough for him. He should be brought here and put to death here in the place where he committed his crime. Green was sentenced thousands of kilometers away in this courtroom in the southern U.S. state of Kentucky. The jurors who convicted him are said to have deliberated for 10 hours on whether he should get the death sentence or life in prison. The jury heard how Green got drunk before going to Al-Janabi's home with three other soldiers. Ahead of the sentencing, Green's lawyer argued that the crimes might not have taken place had Green not been traumatized by all that he had witnessed during his long deployment in Iraq. The case may now be closed in the United States, but for Iraqis living in Al Janabi's neighborhood, the wounds remain open. Paul Wardell, Al Jazeera. Hello, uh, welcome to another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and uh, with me today is Riley Dosh. Uh, she's a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point and the first openly transgender person to graduate from the school. Uh, so, thank you for joining me today. Hi, Joe. Yeah, uh, so how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, actually. Yeah, uh, that's good, uh, because we're about to talk about some horribly depressing shit yes, as we, we, uh, we normally do. Um, so before we get into what we're going to talk about today, we're going to be talking about the uh, Mamoudia incident, uh, also known as the uh, Abir al-Janabi rape and murder. Um, before we get into that, we have to acknowledge our main source uh, for the episode, and that's the book Blackheart's One Platoon's Descent into Madness in Iraq's Triangle of Death by Jim Frederick. Uh, it is a magnificent book if you feel like just absolutely hating the United States military. Yeah, it is. Uh, it it talks about some pretty crazy things. Yeah, and it's what's weird about the book, and we'll absolutely talk about this more later, is like if you've ever spun, spent time around soldiers or anybody in the military, you can pick out one character from the book that you know you worked with, like someone who could definitely could have been that person. There are some absolute char- characters in that book that, yeah, you absolutely know who they are. And there's so many different ones. 
including some really terrible ones too, especially because this was kind of a terrible unit. Yeah, uh, I thought I was in the worst unit in the United States Army, and I now know that is categorically false. Yeah, it. There's always someone worse, and there's always someone better. Yeah, yeah. The the grass is always greener and simultaneously covered in shit. Yep, that sounds about right. Um, <laughs> uh, so this episode, we're gonna do uh, something a little different. Normally, um, myself and Nick, or myself and a guest, uh, will talk um, at length about one thing or one uh, part of history, and that's pretty much it. Um, we we don't really discuss it in like an uh, an open air manner, and that's what we're gonna be doing this time. Uh, what I'm gonna do is talk about the crimes uh, in depth. So. If anybody is listening is squeamish or uh, is made seriously uncomfortable um, by uh, violence and uh, trigger warning for any you know uh, rape victims out there, we will be talking about the rape of a 14 year old girl. Um, I understand these things are unsettling, but in, in order for this to be explained the way it should be, um, censorship isn't going to get us anywhere. Um, censoring history doesn't teach history, and I, I and I am an unfortunate byproduct of that. So uh, and at the end, I'm, I'm going to explain the, uh, the crimes in detail. Like I said, and at the end, we're going to talk about who uh, who and what is to blame uh, for for what happened and um, what exactly been done differently. All right, so uh, you ready? You ready, Dad? Oh, I am so sad already. <laughs> so uh, our story brings us to uh, Mamoudia, Iraq, in March of 2006, um, to a small unmanaged group of soldiers from First Platoon Bravo Company, First Battalion of 502nd Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, so these guys were left alone uh, in a remote combat outpost, or a TCP, also known as a traffic control point. Um, this outpost, uh, which we will talk about in depth a little bit later, uh, was a remote farmhouse far away from the rest of the soldiers' unit. Uh, this is not entirely out of the ordinary, actually. I, I, I have lived in situations like this myself with one uh, major difference uh, that we will talk about. Uh, that is leadership. Uh, which they didn't have much of. No, it's it was um, led by a specialist. Yeah, and you know, as someone who used to be a specialist team leader, I got really pissed off about Cortez, and I was like, you know, you made us all look bad, Cortez. Uh, yeah, everyone's like, oh, don't put the specialist in charge of anything; they'll fuck it up. And then it's like, you know, now they have a they have a whole statue of that they can build. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so the yeah. real the real kicker here. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say you leave a specialist in charge, and apparently a war crime happens. So. Yeah. Yeah. Every time without with without uh, without interruption. Uh, the, the real kicker <laughs> here is that people uh, that put out the outpost uh, and then the, the people they put in charge of those people they put in the outpost. Uh, normally, uh, a team or a squad of soldiers would be led uh, in an outpost like this by a mid or low ranking non-commissioned officer, sergeant or corporal. Um, and in this occasion, it was left to a specialist, Paul Cortez. Um, Paul Cortez was a jumpy little dude who had already had multiple mental and emotional breakdowns, uh, the last of which was only a few days before he was put in charge of this detail. Um, and the book actually notes that like somebody saw him break down into tears while eating their, his cereal in the morning. As, as so, yeah, uh, as any normal functioning adult does. And you know, I'm not not discounting any kind of mental issues he was dealing with at the time. I'm just saying he certainly should not have been in charge. Right. Yeah. And I'll go so far to say, in my opinion, uh, I know you have a different one, which is good. Uh, it it's, makes better for better conversation. <laughs> Nothing happens from here on out if Cortez is put in charge of pretty much any other group of soldiers. Um, but that isn't what he had. Um, 
he he was incompetent and mentally unstable. That that part's inarguable. But if he had like a functioning team of soldiers under him, none of that would have mattered. Um, instead, the, the soldiers he had was uh, one private Stephen Green. Um, and a, a little uh, side note here: the book goes, uh, the book Blackhearts pretty much goes out of its way to pin everything that happened on Stephen Green. Um, I am in the camp of saying that's about eighty percent true, and um, mostly because he's a fucking lunatic. Um, Green, even before he became a rapist and a murderer, was a fucking crazy person. Um, and this is even before all the high casualties and incredibly low morale that was happening within the unit, um, which is a huge part of the book. Um, they were taking incredible amounts of casualties almost every day. Um. On multiple occasions, Green uh, watched people he considered his best friends die uh, through explosive devices or gunshots only feet away from him. Uh, but even before that, uh, his mind was already completely damaged. Uh, he would walk around loudly using racial and ethnic slurs in front of everybody until people would tell him to shut the fuck up, which is not something a normal person does. Like He would just walk around talking about the KKK, how all brown people need to die, except obviously he wouldn't use those words. Um, he wasn't a normal functioning adult in the first place. Um, and uh, he and many other people in his unit were routinely busy Iraqi locals. Uh, he'd stop bathing and changing his clothes. And he would routinely tell anybody who would listen to him that all he wanted to do was kill Iraqis um, and that uh, Iraqis weren't people. Not a good way for the story to start. Yeah, complete psychopath. And as as Joe said, like you probably know someone in these, some of these units that like there's always someone just fucking crazy. And as we said, though, it, it takes more than just green, but it takes some, he's about 60% guilty of it because it takes a village. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a dark twist of that, but yeah, it, they were all, all sorts of bad. And while the book definitely kinds put it on green, and I think it's large because the court case put it on to green. Right, right. Right. They were all like everyone involved basically was messed up in either by Iraq or by their upbringing. Yeah. And I, I didn't really go too far into green's background because this whole episode could have been a few pages of, of writing I would have had to have done, <laughs> but he was from, you know, small town. Um, he was an incredibly racist individual. Uh, he didn't take care of himself. Uh, I mean, like as someone who used to have to sit through these quarterly classes all the time, he has pretty much all the hallmarks of someone that you need to send to mental health. And that's before people start dying. Um, and w- what's really strange is like, nobody seemed to have a problem with it until he started like killing puppies and, and talking about, uh, and then he uh, openly tried to fight his platoon sergeant. And there's another time he like his, was it as uh uh, brigade commander. Uh, I think, like, yeah, I think it's Sergeant major too. He just straight up just yelled in his face and stuff about it. Yeah. And, and you know, it's weird. Cause everyone's like, well, what, what's so wrong with wanting to kill Iraqis? Like, this is why this, this whole episode is why people with this type of mentality are, are horribly toxic. Right. And it's weird. Is it like you get those, you know, tough guy social media types who are like, that's the kind of attitude we want in our soldiers. And then, and then like a couple of comment comments down, like, why don't we just nuke them? Right. And then <laughs> that just leads yeah. to someone else who's actually serious about it. 
Yeah, yeah. And then uh, eventually, uh, you know, somebody who absolutely feels that way for real will end up in uniform. Um, so thankfully, uh, after all this, uh, he was forced to go to a men- uh, mental health provider. Uh, they call it combat stress. Um, and I can tell you from firsthand experience, uh, combat stress is bullshit. I wrote about it in my book. Um, and, but also, I have other uh, firsthand accounts of just like at Kanahar Airfield, if when you go back there um, and uh, like refit, go to the doctor or whatever it may be, they have like a combat stress room. And one of the things in it is like, instead of giving you treatment, they just have you pet a dog. I mean, and, I really like dogs, I mean, but I, yeah, I, right. I don't know how well that will affect, like heal these horrible to witness, but right. I mean, yeah. I mean, my dog is my child. And if I'm upset, like I like to hold my dog, but like if I just watched my friend get blown apart, my dog isn't going to help me. I'm, I'm probably going to need to talk to uh, a therapist. Um, or psychotherapist, somebody. Uh, anyway, uh, Green Green went, and uh, so and when he went there, he had to fill out a um, uh, like a questionnaire, uh, ask him what his hobbies were, uh, how he felt about the locals, um, things like that. So when he was asked what his hobbies were, he said killing Iraqis. And when he was asked on a scale of one to ten how much he hated Iraqis, he said eleven. Um, when they asked him about what he dreamt about when he slept. He said he, that he did not sleep much, but when he did, he dreamt about killing Iraqis. Um, he also freely told the provider about throwing a puppy off of a cliff because it would have been fun. I know, and he did that too. Like he straight up yes. killed some puppy that they found. Yeah, not at all. Not um, at all. Red flag, of course, but no. And and like the provider noted that he didn't seem to make the connection of why he should feel bad about killing a puppy. Um, which is a troubling sign. Yeah, just a little um, bit. And uh, so for treatment, he was given sleeping pills. Um, and that was pretty common for everybody at the time. Is like uh, you go to combat stress because everybody would see you're finally breaking down and then they just give you sleeping pills. And I can attest that that's exactly what they did to me. Um, again, I can't remember exactly what it was called. But uh, they would give narcotic sleep pill- sleeping pills to people in combat zones. Not a good mix. Oh, um, so in another incident, uh, so it, it's an incident that I didn't, I didn't talk about in full, but it, it was like really crazy for me in the book was when the three guy, there's a uh, three guys sitting at a traffic control point and, uh, an Iraqi guy who they knew personally and been an informant simply walked up uh, to them like they're friends and pulled a handgun out and started shooting people. And, um, I believe it killed two of them, and then he ended up getting shot in the head. Um, so Green was one of the first soldiers that showed up to that scene and uh, saw the dead Iraqi on the ground who who had been shot in the head with a two forty Bravo machine gun. So there wasn't much left of his head, um, but there was uh, you know some teeth, and Green picked him up and put them in his pocket. Yeah, it, it's just so weird. Yeah, this is not like and. A lot of people I saw, I don't know a ton of people have read this book, but I know a lot of people who know of this case. And I know a lot of, especially uh, people uh, who know more about the Haditha case. And the two, the two aren't a lot alike uh, because motivations were different and pretty much implications were everything was different at, at, from that aspect. But the amount of violence is uh, almost the same. Sure. And they're within months of each other. Yeah. Uh, and in, in this, not necessarily the same area, but like the same ballpark of an area. Right. And, um, you know, you have people try to explain these away. Like this is the sign. Like, well, what do you think is going to happen when people are put in combat situations? And um, 
Now, I, I feel like the Haditha massacre is the more natural evolution of a stress-broken human mind in combat um, because there's no sexual aspect to it. They didn't try to like burn any bodies. They just shot people. Um, and, and like the, uh, was it Fredrickson um, or Frederick points out that th- there's a, a, a very good study, I believe from back in 1950, that shows um, from about one week out of when you're um, under constant combat stress, your, your brain just stops working correctly. And uh, these, you know, these guys have been here months uh, with the intention of keeping them there for a year. Um, but what isn't noted uh, that you'll start collecting body parts. That's something serial killers do. Um, yeah. And not just and, collecting and, body parts, but collecting like right after your best friend just got shot and like, all right, I'm going to pick up some teeth because that's a normal thing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the soldiers, I think you shot. Uh, and another thing that made it so much worse. Uh, so I think the guy that got shot in the base of the spine during the incident was, well, that, I think that was his best friend. Um, and then his, the command, uh, well, Lieutenant Colonel, I forget his first name, Lieutenant Colonel Kunk, um, blamed the soldiers for their own deaths. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Saying like, well, you um, because he wasn't wearing a helmet. He wasn't wearing a helmet, but a helmet would not have stopped a shot to the base of the neck. No, and neither would your body armor right. at all. But, <laughs> um, so to round out Cortez's team, there was a specialist, James Baker. Um, who I think is the other really, really bad person in this situation. Or may you know, I'll actually say this. PFC Jesse Spielman is is also one of the worst. Oh yeah. Um for for a reason that like that I definitely talk about here in about two paragraphs. Now uh I said earlier that these guys were left out at the TCP. Um and uh they were dropped out there, not checked on by anybody for over a month. Uh, or sorry, sorry for nearly a month. Uh, they had originally expected their platoon sergeant. Uh, a platoon sergeant is a high-ranking non-commissioned officer in charge of the soldier's care and his command. Uh, a guy named First Sergeant, uh, sorry, Sergeant First Class Finlayson. Um, and it was his job, or at least as everybody thought it was his job, to uh, check in on them at least once a week. Uh, but he never did. Um, and this is actually directly from Blackheart's uh, says, quote, Finlayson was reliable. I'll give him that much, said Specialist James Barker, one of the soldiers stationed at TCP2 with Cortez. We knew he would never, ever come out and check with us, so we did whatever we wanted. Uh, that's a problem. Um, now, I can, I, I've seen soldiers go off the rails when they're left unattended. Um, obviously, but if you have psychotic people in your unit and you leave them out there with with Cargo pockets full of sleeping pills and booze um, because uh, and my next part that I pulled uh, is awesome book, but it goes into um, how much drinking and drug use was rampant within the ranks. Um, now, as somebody who was uh, uh, planning to be an officer uh, for you, what, what do you think is, is a reason that you see rampant alcohol and drug abuse within ranks? I mean, I understand that. I'm not defending alcohol and drug use, but I understand like that's what a lot of soldiers are going to get themselves into when they're not being checked and things like that. Right. And I'm, and they were drunk during the incident in particular. Yes. Um, and probably even on drugs too, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised either. And I mean, there were also points though, during the story when the soldiers were found drunk or on drugs and stuff. And they're like, 
hey, this person's clearly on drugs. We should go do something about it. And then nothing pretty much happens. Yeah, it, it's such, you know, of course, when I was downrange, I would have loved to have had a drink like any other anyone else. Um, but and, and it would incredibly easy to get our hands on. It's literally everywhere. I know everybody has these ideas in their head about how Iraq and Afghanistan is, but you can talk. To, there's there's someone on every corner you can talk to him like, hey, I want some whiskey and give them some money and they will give you whiskey like everybody has it. Um, same with drugs. Uh, the the main thing that stops people from doing it is fear of being caught and punished. Exactly. Um, and there was no fear of that uh, because it was pretty obvious that nobody was going to be punished for it. Right. Because not only was there no checks, but even if there were checks, they didn't get punished for it, basically. So that's definitely one of the and I'll talk about that later, but that's definitely one of the biggest things I attribute to this. Yeah. Um, so. Finlayson justified his absenteeism as a reflection of the degree of trust he suddenly had in his men, um, which it should be noted, even though he he's only been in charge for about a month now at this point, he took over. Uh, he called them, quote, a fucking bucket of shit. Uh, so he did not have uh, that much faith in his men all of a sudden. No, he's he just lazy. <laughs> no. uh, so once uh, they knew they were alone, Cortez lost what little control he had over his men, which was nothing really at all. Uh, drinking and drug use became incredibly common throughout Bravo Company, and at the outpost is no different. Um, quote, the vast majority of the Joes were drinking, Green acknowledged. Uh, most of the NCOs, of course, uh, the NCOs are all like us, about 20, 22 years old, though. By February, March, I was doing some type of intoxic- intoxicant every day. A lot of Valiums and a lot of these pink pills, they were giving, uh, giving me some kind of hallucinations. Uh, a lot of other guys were taking those, too. The Iraqi army guys would sell them to us, unquote. That's what Green said was happening at the outpost. Um, and I know uh, a lot of people, uh, especially back at, at this time, the military was terrible. Uh, I know they're probably still bad about now, about giving out uh, pretty much any narcotic painkiller for anything. Like, oh, rolled your ankle, have an oxy. Like, and they would give insane pill counts. Like, oh, you, you need two weeks of, of medicine, but we're going to give you 80 pills. So yeah, there's there's, there's got to be a ton of medicine floating through this unit, right? Um, Especially in such a, like a disorganized environment as it was back then. Yeah, um, the main difference between this outpost, which is known as TCP two, uh, was that there was no one to wrangle these guys in, which would have happened at a bigger base. Uh, so at one point, totally shit faced, they captured several suspected Iraqi insurgents and began to drunkenly beat the shit out of them. Um, they were caught mid-beating by a squad leader named Sergeant Tony. Ur- what, how do you pronounce his name? Uribe. Uh, Uribe. I think. Uribe. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm I'm guilty of having a, a bad pronunciation habit, but I listened to the audiobook for this, and they pronounce his name Urib. So like, <laughs> I, I went into this all fucked up. So uh, Tony Uribe, um, who uh, they call to take the detainees away. This is what happened next. He said. What the fuck are you doing? Cortez, you need to get a grip. What, said Cortez, slurring? You guys are way out of line. What if somebody, anybody other than me and Babs, who's a guy named Babano, um, who came to your, to your call? You'd be fucked. Where's your brain? You need to get these guys back and you need to get your stupid asses back to TCP too. So Cortez and his men are stumbling drunk through the middle of a street in Iraq, beating their detainees. Is what's happening here. Yeah, and getting t- detainees drunk, like... That's not even legitimate. And the squad leader is saying, well, what if 
no one else. What if someone else found you? It's like, well, no, you are the person that found them. You're supposed to do this. Like that's your job. And so a lot of this deals with being, uh, just way too comfortable with subordinates. And I think that's definitely the case with Cortez because he was just straight up just really good friends with his subordinates. And so he wasn't able to tell them, hey, this is a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. And no point did Cortez ever say, this is all crazy illegal. We shouldn't do it. Well, he did for about five seconds and changed his mind, exactly. which we're about to get to. Um, so Cortez, uh, when confronted by his squad leader, simply said, fuck you, mother, as he was swaying back and forth in the street. Whoa, whoa there, dude. Who do you think you're talking to? Uribe responded. You're a fucking dick, Cortez slurred. Every time Uribe turned around, one of the other soldiers would shout at the Iraqis and punch them again. Fucking motherfucker. You probably helped kill Nelson and Kasica, Spielman yelled as he tried to stomp on one of their heads. Uh, at this point, Uribe realized everything was spiraling out of control. And uh, he said, bro, you just need to stop it. All right. He repeated it, Cortez. You're drunk. You don't know what the fuck's going on. I'm trying to make it so you don't get busted here, okay? Which is not what Nencio is supposed to be doing in this situation. Um, there's also a brand new soldier there named uh, Private Nicholas Lake, who, according to platoon rules, had, uh, had did not quite earn the right to beat suspects yet. Uh, he was there guarding the women and children. Oh, you know, just the right to beat people is... And it kind of goes into just like how messed up this situation is, like the environment that they're living in. We're like, yeah, beating people is a privilege, like beat people because you get to be in the unit for so long kind of thing. Yeah, I forget exactly what the rules were. I think it was like you had to see combat before you could beat somebody or something like that. Um, Whatever it is, is fucking insane. But at one point... um, uh, one of the soldiers screams that all we ought to just kill all these motherfuckers. And uh, he begins uh, butt stroking uh, one of the Iraqi detainees in the face and head with his uh, rifle. And it's then where Uribe actually thinks he just watched them beat somebody to death. Um, but instead, he just walks away. Uh, he still doesn't do anything. Uh, he manages to wrangle the ta- detainees and herd the drunk soldiers back into the truck. The whole time, Cortez was upset and emotional that uh, Uribe was not being cooler about the whole thing, uh, saying he would have expected him to have his back. Spielman was an emotional drunk telling Babineau how much he loved him and uh, how Babineau had always been there for him. Um, Instead of reporting this uh, or doing anything, maybe taking Cortez away, taking the whole team with him, uh, Uribe and Babineau got the guys from third squad and got back in their trucks and left and just left uh, everybody that was drunk and emotional right there in the middle of the streets. Uh, Uribe didn't report anything that he saw, uh, which would become a common occurrence for him. And he also could have stopped everything from happening. I mean, imagine this timeline if uh, Uribe went back to like, or a captain or maybe more people and more vehicles and like, holy shit, look what I just saw. Like this, what this would have ended right here. Yeah. And the fact that they expected him to do this and he and the fact that he did not retaliate against his subordinates or tell them hey you can't actually do this and then actually punish them just kind of means that in that was acceptable to them and they were so lost at that point that anything just was not bad enough yeah they're like well we got away with this fuck what else can we do and that's not a good precedent to set which, I mean, and we'll get into this later, but that's kind of what happened because he finds out about it and he's about it because, like, he gets upset about it, but... 
That's the part that blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. That part left. I actually, that part in the book, I had to put the book down and like go have a drink. Uh, (laughs) So uh, back at TCP2, Green began to openly talk about wanting to murder Iraqi civilians. Uh, Cortez laughed him off saying, quote, don't do that right now. I'm in charge. I don't want to get in trouble. Um, That's when Barker began to get an idea. And this is where I begin to understand that Barker might be a bad guy. Um, right. Bar- Barker said, I've gotten a better idea. We've all killed. We've all killed Hajis, but we've been here twice. I've never fucked one of these bitches. Cortez interest was piqued. They talked about it. The three of them semi-seriously, but somewhat distractingly as other things throughout the morning, like they're going about normal duties while just talking about finding an Iraqi woman to have sex with, which means rape. Uh, they're not going to have anybody to find consensual sex with them. Um, sometimes Barker and Cortez would confer privately. Sometimes Green and Parker would, but uh, sometimes all three of them would talk together in a group. But Barker wasn't kidding. Uh, this is not like a semi-joking conversation like before. Uh, and he already had a target picked out. Like this is like. Now I'm not going to say everybody sits around and um, bored on an outpost and talks about wanting to go out and fucking turn into you know vikings and rape and pillage a small village um but he had a plan like he'd been thinking about this for a very long time um he had a house picked out not far from tcp2 that would be the ideal target and knew that only one male lived there and three women barker thought one of the girls was quote pretty hot for a haji chick and they should go over there right now barker knew they couldn't and he asked green if he'd be okay with killing them all green answered absolutely uh, that was when the rest of the soldiers began planning for real. They weren't joking anymore. Barker knew where the family kept their AK-47, a weapon that they would use in order to conceal who they really were. And this isn't anything weird. Every house in Iraq was allowed to have one AK-47, and I believe two magazines of ammunition. Um, and they had been to this house multiple times. Um, the actually knew American soldiers liked their daughter to the point that they didn't let her go outside anymore. Um, out of this group, Cortez was the only unsure one, telling them that they were insane. So the two dropped it like they were just talking about killing and raping an entire family and just kidding. And instead just went back to playing cards and drinking. Um, as they got drunker and drunker, finally Cortez stood up and said, quote, fuck this. If we're going to do that, I'm going to fuck the bitch first. Well, let's go do this. Uh, then they began divvying up duties and jobs like they're going on a regular patrol out in the city. Um, they would be leaving Private Howard behind to man the radio in case anybody decided to come to tcp2 and they had to give them enough time to run here's the true i mean now i'm gonna say true evil which doesn't really mesh well with history because history has different shades of evil but this is pretty fucking bad um and this is when spielman who if you've noticed i haven't been talking about because he wasn't there for any of these conversations he just walked up uh while they were planning out the operation to go murder and rape this entire family um he didn't know anything about it, uh, but at, when he asked them what's going on, they told him he didn't even blink and just joined in. Like, that's insane. Yeah, the I I tend to think that Spielman is kind of has the mentality of Green. He's just very quiet about it. Yeah, because that's not something you just get told about. Like, yeah, yeah, sounds like a great idea. Like that does. Yeah, normal people don't do that. Yeah, this isn't like going to the bar. They're like, oh, we're just gonna like go murder and rape people. Oh yeah, right. Like that's not how a normal brain functions. That's that's not it's not a normal person. And I think he's maybe he's better at being a fucking sociopath than Green. 
because this whole time Green's falling apart emotionally, not washing himself, you know, not changing his clothes, to start fights with random people. Nobody says shit about Spielman until now. Um, so they re- remember they're trying to conceal who they are. So they're like, well, let's change out of our uniforms. And they're going to change into what they call the ninja suits. You know, it's the black poly pro silky type uniform. And um, but Green refuses uh, because it's the only uniform he has. And uh, so they all say, fuck it. And they just cover their faces with T-shirts. Um, they told Howard uh, without any uncommon uh, like doubts, like they didn't mince their words and they told Howard what they're about to do. They just told him, we're going to go fuck an Iraqi chick and then escaped out the back of the TCP in broad daylight. The house is only a couple hundred yards away, and it did not take them long to get to the El Janabi home. Uh, when they found the youngest of the family, Hadil, and the father, Kasim, outside, they forced them inside at gunpoint. Once inside, they cleared the house uh, and forced the entire family into one room. Having secured the family's AK-47, that was when Cortez grabbed 14-year-old Abir El Janabi and marched her out of the room. Green stood watch over the rest of the family while the soldiers left for the girl. Barker pinned a beer down while Cortez raped her. The book goes out of its way to mention that his dick wouldn't work, but he raped her anyway. In the bedroom, the family could hear the screams of a beer and began to attempt to push past Green. He brought his stolen rifle up only for it to jam, so he switched to a shotgun he brought with him and proceeded to kill the entire family at point-blank range. By this point, Barker and Cortez had switched, and he was raping the poor girl. Green left the bedroom and pushed Barker out of the way and he raped a beer as well. Afterwards, he stuffed a pillow over her face and shot her in the head with the, with the AK 47 that he had fixed. They then dumped kerosene all over her body and set it on a fire before running back to the TCP. Once they got back, they grilled some chicken wings while destroying evidence of their crime and, and began to drink and talk about how awesome it was. Shortly afterwards, Iraqi troops were alerted to the fire, uh, which had spread throughout the home and called us soldiers for help. One of the soldiers who responded was Sergeant Uribe. Uh, when he went to TCP2 afterwards and then described to Green what he had shown up and seen and taken pictures of for an investigation, Green admittedly, uh, immediately admitted that he did it. He said, quote, I did. When uh, Uribe didn't believe him, Green went through all the details of the crime, omitting, of course, that he had any help. He said he did it all by himself. He told Green to shut the fuck up and I didn't have time for his bullshit today. So the one that Green made without any kind of pressure. He said, yeah, I did it. Right. And uh, and when during the planning phase, they were green, just volunteered like, yeah, if we get in trouble, just say I did it solo. Like he was just willing to take that blame. And then he was so willing to take that blame. He wanted to be like, I guess, proud of it, maybe. And he just, I he guess. just straight up says, like, yeah, like he would have gotten away with it, to be perfectly honest. And yeah, I have no doubt this would have gone anywhere uh, if green just kept his mouth shut. I know there's a whistleblower involved and we're going to talk about him, but like if, if green never, you know, sold himself out and went in turn selling everybody else out, like they'd be free. And yeah, that's why I consider just so messed up and scary about the whole thing. Yeah, they actually had uh, a saying, cause at the time there was so much violence. I think they said there was like a hundred murders a day throughout the Baghdad area um, from sectarian violence. And like when, uh, you know, Uribe was at, was asked about it. He didn't think anything was strange at all about the scene. And the Iraqi said the only thing that was strange is that somebody raped somebody. Like that was if they had just gone in and murked an entire family, it would have been a, wouldn't even have measured in anybody's radar. It was unusual. And the shotgun shell. Uh, Iraqis generally don't use shotguns. 
um, they don't have them. It's kind of an American thing. And um, that was like the only evidence, physical evidence on the scene that pointed to uh, an, a Westerner doing it because like military contractors had shotguns as well. And there's a ton of them in the area. But yeah, uh, there's no way that they were going to find out who did this it, it, without Green admitting to it. Um, so you would hope that uh, Uribe would report this, right? Of course not. A few days later, he'd confront Green again, demanding more details, at which point Green once again told him things that only someone who had responded to the crime, which Green did not, or committed the crime, would have known. Still, Uribe didn't do anything. Instead, uh, he told Green, quote, I'm done with you. You're dead to me. Get out of the army or I'll get you out myself. That was his response to all this. Like, well, you're too bad to can't deal with you. Like, it's mind blowing. They're like, I think that's something that kind of goes throughout this entire ordeal is a lot of people were upset that dishonor was being brought to their unit or the army or something and and completely forgetting the fact that like four people were murdered and a girl was raped. Right. Because they just, it's just so normal. They're normalized to it that even if they're the perpetrators of it and stuff, they've seen so much violence by their own hands that it's yeah. I, that part. And uh, as strange as it is, Green did just that. Uh, he went to mental health again, uh, was almost immediately diagnosed as a sociopath, um, which is like an immediate discharge thing in the in the army at the time, apparently. Um, he, for, for like the first time and everything else, he was completely open with uh, mental health about how he felt. Like even before when he was talking about, I just want to kill Iraqis. That's all I want to do. He, he kind of said it like jokingly. Uh, like with a smirk, uh, because he took the whole thing seriously. This time he just poured his heart out. Uh, obviously, he left the details of his crime um, out of it. And um, he was diagnosed immediately. Uh, so only 11 days after committing a... Uh, so uh, when you go in to talk to these people, you have to do an intake. Uh, because before he talked to us, this time he actually talked to a, like a licensed therapist. Um, and before he went to talk to a licensed therapist, uh, he had to do an intake form. Uh, which again asks him a series of questions, um, and they use those questions in combination with their uh, interview with them to come up with like a threat level. And if you um, are like a super high risk to yourself, like you're talking about killing yourself, hurting yourself, whatever, they can like take your weapons away. Uh, same if you're having homicidal tendencies, which is ironic that this didn't happen to Green before. But um, so uh, eleven days. After committing a quadruple murder and a gang rape, um, with his study and his survey, uh, they rated his current potential for harming others as low. Yeah, way to go, Army Medicine. Yeah, and I understand like the difficulty that they're, the psychiatrists have to go through because you have to evaluate hundreds of people a day, even yeah. sometimes, and you don't really expect any particular soldier to commit war crimes and stuff. And you know that if you even like put their threat level up a little bit, that's just going to be a major red flag for them for the rest of their career. And so for sure, I understand it's kind of, it's hard to predict sometimes these things, but actually after the fact, you kind of realize the red flags, but there's so much wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Um, it's you know, and I understand the impact of mental health in in the military. I actually know somebody 
who uh, went and received mental health treatment uh, probably a decade ago. Uh, And recently, they wanted to become a recruiter. Um, And what stopped them from becoming a recruiter was their mental health record. So, yeah, it's 20, almost 2019 now and uh, still back assorted on all of that. But so I, I can see why the mental health professionals would give hesitation before throwing a flag on someone. Um, but with his record talking about killing else, like you really missed, missed the, the ship there, guys. Right. They're definitely um, not being honest about the actual threat yeah. level, they think. Yeah. Or maybe it's just like something that somebody said they had to do and nobody ever took it seriously. I, I don't know. I'm not a mental health professional. I'll never claim to even pretend to be one. Um, and so this all probably would have ended there. Um, again, Uribe wasn't going to tell anybody about it. Um, nobody else knew about Green's involvement other than the other people that were involved. Um, there was, like we said before, there's nothing connecting anybody to these crimes because the fire and afterwards everybody's just cleans the whole thing up. And that's when Uribe told one private Justin Watt everything he knew. Um, this actually trust, uh, troubled poor Watt so badly. He became, uh, he kind of became unglued. Uh, he stopped sleeping uh, he became emotional. He started crying all the time. And so finally, he uh, went to mental health uh, about it. And uh, now if you go to mental health, uh, just like I'm sure it's the same way here in the States. And like, I know somebody was raped and murdered. Like, y- you have to tell the cops. And that's kind of what happened eventually. Um, so Watt became a whistleblower. Uh, and his psychotherapist immediately requested that he uh, was CID. That was uh, that amount of effort was shit canned. Uh, well, attempted to be shit canned uh, by Lieutenant Colonel Kunk, their commanding officer. Um, he actually attempted to charge Watt with filing a, a false report. Um, his rationale was Watt wasn't there. Uh, there's no evidence. Um, so how the fuck would Watt know? He must be lying. Um, so finally the gears of law began to turn and green civilian having been discharged for mental health reasons was arrested in North Carolina in 2006. Uh, he'd be the first person ever charged under military extra extraterritorial judicial jurisdiction act. Fuck me. Uh, a law originally signed to rein in military contractors. Um, it was, uh, a law, uh, passed uh, in order to, uh, be able to charge civilians for crimes that were committed overseas. um, he was charged with the rape and murder of Jabir Abir El Janabi and the murders of six-year-old Hadil, her father Kasim, and her mother Farikaya. Uh, Cortez, Spielman, and Barker were charged with the same thing. Howard was charged with obstruction of justice for destroying evidence, and Uribe was charged with failing to report Green's confession, dereliction of duty, and obstruction of justice. Um, here's uh, where things kind of get strange. Green was a civilian, so he went to federal court and he pled not guilty. He was sentenced to uh, five life terms, none with the possibility of parole. Um, he, his argument effectively was, uh, I was crazy. Uh, look, I'm even diagnosed with it, but that didn't work. Uh, Barker flipped on everybody else to avoid the death penalty and was sentenced to 90 years. Uh, after his sentencing, Barker was seen laughing and smoking outside with a court bailiff. Um, Cortez pled guilty uh, to afford uh, to escape the death penalty. And was sentenced to 100 years. Uh, in court, he swore he had no idea that Green was going to kill the family, which is patently false, uh, as everybody else's testimony said otherwise. 
And uh, the whole time he was like a sobbing, wet, emotional mess. Um, Spielman pled guilty and was sentenced to 110 years. Howard pled guilty and was sentenced to 27 months. Uh, Uribe uh, pled guilty to all of his charges and uh, was uh, given a discharge. Yeah, dishonorable discharge. Yeah, uh, same with Howard. Um, Now, here's the kicker. Because they were sentenced under all of the soldiers uh, still on active duty who were sentenced will be eligible for parole in about 10 years. So uh, they actually first came up for parole in 2015. Um, and they were all shot down, but they still came up for parole. Uh, Green was fucked and he knew it, having life without. And he uh, expended a lot of effort trying to get his case transferred to the military justice system so he could have a parole possibility. Uh, because he was in uh, federal penitentiary rather than Leavenworth. Um, it failed uh, because I don't think any court case has ever been transferred that way. And I don't think there's any kind of law saying that you can do that. Um, he was also attacked on multiple occasions by other inmates for being a rapist. Uh, poor baby. Oh, no. Uh, and, yeah. And he had to be placed in uh, protective custody uh, for his own safety, where he's under 23 hour a day lockdown and uh, has no contact with anybody else because they'll just try to kill him. Uh, in 2014, Green, seeing no other way out, killed himself in a cell via hanging with a bedsheet. I'm sure we all mourn the loss. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and actually going into this, uh, I knew that. Uh, I knew how it ended to an extent. Like I knew uh, everybody was in prison for it. And that's like the one, I don't know how to word this. The one war crime where we can be like, finally the U S army did the right thing. Uh, I didn't know green killed himself until I started researching this. I was like, Oh, I guess it does kind of have a happy ending. Yeah. It's not mentioned, uh, <laughs> it's not mentioned in the book. I think that's because he killed himself after the book had come out. Yeah. I think the book came out in like 10 or 11 and he killed himself in 2014. He actually did a, um, uh, interview from his cell in uh, Kentucky, whatever uh, federal p- prisons there in Kentucky. And uh, he was like an unemotional, crazy person as always, but all he wanted to talk about is how terrible his prison sentence was. And uh, uh, they're like, so uh, if you could say anything to the uh, family these days, uh, what would it be? He's like, oh yeah, sorry. Sorry about all that. Anyway, uh, if you notice, I'm not allowed out of my cell. I'm like, wow, you're still a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, he's. he said the constantly, not during Iraq, but even afterwards, like during his um, appeals and stuff, he's like, yeah, I don't think of Iraqis as humans. It's like, yeah, you're not going to win your appeal, buddy. You're, it's just not going to happen. And, you know, even let's say even if he did, or let's say uh, he didn't. Um, talk to Uribe and uh, and get booted uh for being nuts. Uh he when he talked about his time uh, like those few months that uh, he was free uh before he got picked up for the crime. Uh he was just driving around uh loaded down with guns and getting drunk and high constantly. So it was really only a matter of time t- before he killed somebody else. Uh, killed a fifth person, raped another person, I don't know. Um so uh we talked about having this episode uh, or doing this episode of feels like for months now. And there's a reason why is because you have a really interesting perspective on, uh, or uh, at least you got an interesting perspective while you were at West point. Um, you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah. So during your senior year at West point, you take an officership class, MX 400. And at least during my semester, and I'm as I believe a few years before me as well, 
we did basically a semester-long case study on this one particular thing. We read the book. We talked about it every single day. We went over everything about it. And then during that year, they all in to West Point, like just about everyone in the chain of command, the brigade commander, Colonel Kunk, the battalion commander, all the way down to platoon leadership and including Sergeant Uribe. Um, and so now that I have the opportunity to like talk to some of these people, in particular Sergeant Uribe, and that, but then also interestingly enough, I had a captain at West Point who was, he was the platoon leader for the replacement to the replacement of this unit. So that I mean, in the same area. So he was literally the platoon leader in that same like TCP, the, in that same area. It was, yeah. it was staffed by a company instead of platoon, but 2008, like he was, he was there right after the event and stuff. So he knew a lot of the people involved and stuff too. And um, you were saying before that this took uh, quite a few years to to put together because uh, Colonel Kunk, uh, which I'll stop calling him Lieutenant Colonel Kunk now because he got promoted. Yeah. Um, uh, he knew that everybody at the academy would fucking hate his guts, right? Oh yeah, no. He, he knew he knew we'd all <laughs> crucify him. Like that's not my words. Even like he knew that he'd be crucified, and he was. Like a lot of cadets were just like why were you such a shitbag? Like we don't talk about it much so far in the episode, but he was an absolutely toxic, toxic battalion commander. And a, the book really, he did so many bad things, not only to the unit, but then also just the battalion as well. And that rippled downward through the chain of command. And so the whole chain of command was just completely fucked. Yeah, I've never seen or heard of anything quite like the plans that he had laid out. Um, like having, I mean, we were undermanned to the point that like we had three people in a vehicle, but like we still had a whole squad on patrols. And his battle plan called for uh, like three people at a time going out on their own. Um, to another position to stay in guard for 12 hours and going in another, like people weren't sleeping for days at a time and incredibly dangerous positions. And I don't think they ever talked about a, a, a casualty, whether it be killed or wounded that Kunk could not find a way on the soldiers. Right. And that, that was a pretty big aspect about not the platoons psychology, but just the whole leadership environment, because Every single time somebody would be killed, the platoon would be at the service, the memorial service, and Colonel Kunk would come down and he'd just start like shit talking the entire platoon. Like, you guys let this happen. This is your fault and stuff. And like, that's not what you want to hear when your best friend just got shot. So, yeah, he did not inspire much confidence. No. And, you know, he also. I mean, this kind of goes without saying, but uh, he, uh, he obviously. Um, thought so little of his soldiers like i've i've had some bad commanders over the years but nothing quite even compares to this like that's so it's almost like if you were to sketch a terrible commander for like i don't know a made for tv movie you would make him because he's so bad and and almost like accidentally evil that he shouldn't really exist yeah, and the problem is that in such a paradoxical paradoxical way, on paper, he appears to be a really great commander because he had taken all these assignments and he had done them 
mediocrely successfully. But the problem is that every single time he did it, like his entire command just hated him. And for most part, he's like a paper pusher. He didn't, yeah. he didn't really do a whole lot of combat deployments and stuff until that point. And he just appeared good on paper because he took a lot of casualties, but he was able to move forward and they couldn't necessarily attribute the casualties to him. So yeah, that's, he got ended up getting promoted to Colonel. And you know, what, what did he have to say at West Point? I'm curious. I mean, I know, you know, that first, I think it's the first like two chapters of the book. Um, you hear, uh, the author talk about, well, whenever I talk to anybody about Kunk, uh, you know, all the other higher ranking officers have nothing but nice, but literally everybody who ever worked for him wants to have fucking drag him behind a truck. Yeah. Like what did he have to say? Well, so much of the people at, that came to West Point were that everyone, okay. Everyone in that platoon, everyone that chain command, they just hate each other. Basically they all blame each other for it. Um, Colonel Kunk basically, he, he blamed his lower chain command. He said he was basically saying that he did things right. He did things by the book. He he sent he sent out reasonable expectations, reasonable commands, and things like that. And he put a lot of the blame on the company commanders and stuff, and saying, "Well, they just weren't following it out. They could have been smarter about it and stuff." And you know what? Maybe they could have been, maybe. But it's pretty clear that his the way he pushed out those commands and the way he reacted to criticism made it completely ineffectual, even if they were reasonable, reasonable commands, which I probably don't think they were, but I haven't actually seen them. Right. And he responded to criticism by just outright verbal and mental abuse. If I right. It was called the cunt gun, the company commanders <laughs> called it where he would just like, he had like a few company commanders that he liked, but the rest of them, he would just, they would say he just turn the cunt gun on him and just fucking nuke that person for stupid things even, but just like tear them apart about how such a terrible person they were, how they shouldn't be leading their companies and stuff. And that does not inspire confidence whatsoever in any command decision you do. So. Right. And I, and, and I know on like more than one occasion, people brought complaints to him and like, he just wouldn't, didn't want to hear him. And I know on another occasion, um, I believe is when the platoon leaders said my platoon is combat ineffective um, from whether it be casualties or just like massive amounts of, of um, mental instability. Um, like I, I know I said earlier, people were like breaking down in, into the, like tears while eating cereal. Um, people would randomly snap and have angry outbursts at one another. Um, everybody was on sleeping pills. And I think it was a lieutenant or, or a first sergeant was like, my company's done. Like there's, they just can't, they just can't do this anymore. And, um, his response was, that's not your job to find out when they're combat effective. That's my job. Right. And he wasn't there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not like he's coming down. And whenever he did come down and actually visit things, which he didn't do all that often, apparently, but when he did, he would just find something terrible to just rip them apart for. And I, so his excuse was, I did everything right. Everybody else did everything wrong, which is kind of what I expected. I'm curious how Finlinson still defends his decision never to check on Cortez. Yeah. Finlinson, I mean, he kind of just goes with the, because Finlinson was no one of these people that appeared to West Point. And he was very much of the, kind of, as you said, that he trusted his people. 
so he thought that was the good way to do platoon leadership was you trust your subordinates and stuff. And that's one of the things West Point was trying to hit into us that that's how you don't do platoon leadership. I mean, you trust, but you check. You check and verify your platoon. Yeah. Because you can't just like trust them and then just walk away because then you're not actually doing anything. You're not a leader. Yeah. But that, um, he also blamed... So the reason that they're out at the TCPs for like two or three times the normal length that they're supposed to be out there was because he was doing these community outreach programs, which to his credit, were actually probably a good plan that actually probably helped things. However, his plan meant that they had to stay out there. And so he credited his absence with, he was out there doing all these things. It's like, okay, yes, you can do that, but it caused him to be absent from his command. And because of that, no, he like never visited any of the TCPs ever. And so because there's no expectation of him showing up, this, this shit happens. Yeah. I mean, like, well, we can start getting hammered in broad daylight and popping pills. It's not like Finlayson's going to show up and check on, on us. And exactly. What really interested me is that you got to sit down and talk effectively one-on-one with Sergeant Uribe and Uribe and, that's really interesting to me because the book I think tries to put him in a sympathetic light and I'm not a huge fan of that. Um, so what was your impression when you talked to him personally? So one of the things that he very much was like, yeah, I fucked up. He was kind of open about that fact. And I think you kind of have to be at that point. Yeah. But one of the things that he tried to make clear was that, Every unit has a Stephen Green. Every unit has this like fucked up psychopath kid that just doesn't understand morality. And I don't think that's necessarily true, but there's certainly a lot of people like that, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. But he especially blamed a lot of the things on Barker, I believe. Interesting. Because he's, he said that before they deployed, Barker was always the problem child of the platoon. He always was getting in trouble. Like actual, he fucking stabbed his wife in the sh- in the knife. Are you fucking like, serious? I am dead serious. Like there was domestic assault cases against him. Like there was all sorts of stuff wrong with him. And so Uribe was saying that, you know, the, at platoon gets togethers, it was Barker that he would tell, yeah, don't go near him. Don't go, don't interact with him. He's the fucked up one. And so that was kind of his case. Was that. Yeah, I fucked up, but Barker is the one that you need to uh, be aware of, like the type the types that are psychotic, but they're not loud about it. Yeah, that was that was one of the more interesting things. And I think we talked about this before uh, we started recording was like uh, I locked on to green um, almost immediately uh, reading the book, uh, probably like everybody else, because he was so outwardly insane pretty much from the get go. Um, you know, he was the, he's the loudest, most obscene asshole in the room and he's doing incredibly outright fucked up things like clacking teeth, uh, throwing puppies off the roof, crazy shit, man. And like, it's don't hear it. And maybe the author glazed over, didn't report it, or maybe nobody felt like telling him about the domestic assault cases about, uh, from Barker. Uh, what also surprises me is that he was still in the army after he stabbed his wife. Yeah. And I think that 
I mean, green obviously showed red flags enough that I feel like would be red flag enough to discharge him. Barker too. But I think that was very much a product of the environment that they were in where sure. this is, this is just pre-surge. This is uh, the army has been now in Iraq for like two, three years. And so they were hurting for recruits. Yeah. And so they didn't want to discharge people. And so there's a lot of um, waivers given for enlistment and keeping people in the army and stuff. And I think, I think Barker green was one of those. Like yeah. I, I yeah. Think green yeah. had a, what I think they would call a morality waiver. Cause he was busted for selling dope or something like that. Um, and, you know, actually I can attest to this personally, uh, 2000, uh, late 2005, 2006 is when I joined the army and, uh, showing my age and all. And, uh, my base, I joined when I was 17. I, I, I actually was arrested when I was, uh, 15, only a couple years earlier for, uh, a large amount of vandalism and that didn't bother the army. And, um, once I joined my recruiting class, like there's people like you could have felonies. Uh, they just couldn't be, uh, I don't think they could be involving a firearm at the time. Like you could have class C nonviolent felonies on your end, be enlisted. Um, it was an interesting time for sure. And mental health was, I mean, especially in 2006, uh, if you were already in, but if you were a new recruit, they did not give a shit about your mental health. And- yeah. And yeah, the psychiatrists they talk about in the book kind of show that it's like, yeah, I dream about killing Iraqis and stuff, but well, so long as the guy still is uh, soldiering, I guess he's fine. Yeah. Yeah. He hasn't killed anybody yet, except like he totally did. Um, and, so if you were, uh, so who else was at the, at, at the West Point uh, talk and what was like, I mean, they all fucking hated each other and it took forever to get them all together, but like, yeah. uh, what, who else was there to talk? Uh, so the platoon leader, uh, Tim Norton was there. I think the company commander Goodwin was there and the brigade commander Ebel. I mean, the brigade commander, to be perfectly honest, didn't have a whole lot to say because he's a brigade commander. <laughs> doesn't really have that much detail to give. He was the platoon leader. Uh, it, it, sh- it should be noted that during this time period, he was out on his uh, mid-deployment leave. So he was not actually present at the time. Oh, right. Which, that's right. Right. So that's another reason that I kind of lay a lot of the blame on Fenlinson because not only is your, not your platoon leaders out and you're still not checking. Like, which, by the way, I should mention that Fenlinson also got promoted. Of course he did. Yep. But Lieutenant Norton was an interesting one who he also got promoted. Although I don't really blame him for a whole lot of things because he was also like two or three weeks new to the platoon as well. Oh yeah. He, he's the most innocent one out of, if anybody could be innocent, like you can't one, you can't do anything in three weeks and he wasn't even there. Um, that, that platoon was absolutely Finlinson's problem. Uh, and then he did nothing to fix it. Um, and the brigade commander is interesting because I fully believe that he didn't know anything that was going on because he had Kunk reporting to him. And, you know, maybe this is unfair to Kunk if that's even a possibility, but I could definitely see him as uh, the guy who doesn't tell his brigade commander anything. Right. And they talked a little bit about that in the book where like one of the company commanders reported up that, he's read on all sorts of manpower issues and they got reported up to through battalion 
and he was visiting brigade headquarters and he saw his own report and his own report showed green, uh, not Stephen green, but green on all personnel. And so there was some, whether it was Kung himself or one of someone on staff, but somewhere between its company level and the brigade level stuff was being hidden, I think. Yeah. And that very much, whether it was Kunk himself, it doesn't really matter because it was kind of his command environment that allowed that shit to happen, I think. Oh, yeah. And, you know, even even though Kunk tries to um, explain away a, a lot of stuff, um, that doesn't explain away his... Uh, when he tried to destroy Justin Green, or sorry, Justin Green, uh, Justin Watt, uh, the whistleblower. Right. Um, not like if you give him the benefit of the doubt and be like, well, he was attempting all these, uh, very bold missions like, oh yeah, there is that asterisk of where someone did come forward to tell you something was incredibly wrong. And not only did you attempt to have him prosecuted, um, you got his psychotherapist fired, um, which he did. And he also nearly got Watt killed. Um, yeah, that the, I'm assuming he didn't talk about any of that. No, no, he really didn't. Um, he very much defended himself by saying like he was doing things that any battalion commander would, um, and that he was giving reasonable commands and that Watt really was not a trustworthy person. And so, even yeah. though there's nothing in Watt's record to show that he would be untrustworthy. Like, yeah, and I, he was a young soldier with almost no record whatsoever. Right, and I think part of it was that he saw Watt as just trying to get out of it because Watt was new to it, new to the environment and stuff, and he probably just didn't think that Watt could handle it. Sure, and was just making up a story to try to get away, like just get transferred away. And you know, this pro- he probably would have succeeded if it uh, wasn't for his psychotherapist, and that was, I believe, the same um, uh, the same woman who worked for the California prison system. But uh, she told him, like, "No, you need to get fucking legal advice," like over and over and over again. And uh, finally, he did, and uh, the investigation began. And um, one of the things that stuck out to me is if I had a soldier or if anybody with a functioning brain had somebody who uh, was was effectively becoming a whistleblower on their own unit, which is an incredibly taboo thing to do in the military, um, you wouldn't put them in the tent next door with all the people he's uh, talking, he's, he's going to talk to investigators about with weapons. Um, and that's exactly what they did. Right. Yeah, they left him there. And, I mean, they eventually, to their credit, they did eventually uh, separate him. Right. Because there were whole uh, threats made against him from other people in the platoon. Oh, yeah. People were openly. <laughs> right. Which were like, and which gets me is that some of those people that were like openly trying to retaliate against him believe the story, too. Like, they're like, yeah, Green may have done that, but you still should not have whistleblowed. Like, you're a fucking really, snitch. Yeah. That's the yeah. part that, and, and they weren't involved in it. Like I would get if like green or Spielman or, or any of these people were like, well, we got to fucking kill him. Like I would get that uh, like as a guttural primal response, people attempt to kill their witnesses all the time or their, uh, their accusers all the time. Um, not involved in the crime whatsoever. 
right like friends of the vic not friends of the perpetrators and stuff yeah yeah that's that part got me and you know that's it's interesting uh because this all somehow comes right back around to the incident that uh that we uh that I have somehow accidentally become popular about, and that is reporting war crimes, um, where um, it is hard. It, it is hard to come forward and get and, and get taken care of, and 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 get the reports put in to the point where like CID and the FBI starts to starts to get involved, and that is what thankfully happened here. Um, but yeah, the 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 slight silver lining of this war crime, if there are silver linings to war crimes, is that they were actually charged and it was not just like they charged like a company commander or something or a platoon leader. No, they actually charged the soldiers involved with the, the incident. Yeah. And, and they went hard, like in comparison to, um, you know, the Haditha killings where everybody walked away a free man. Um, everybody here will hopefully die in prison. One of them already did. Um, and yeah, it's, it's what's surprising to me is, well, maybe it's not surprising, but, um, that the people who allowed it to happen did not get in any trouble whatsoever. Like there was not even a letter of reprimand for any of these people. Was there not that I'm aware of? I mean the, so Uribe and Howard both got dishonorable discharges, right? Which I mean that, that really fucks you over outside of the military and things. Sure. But yeah. no, I, I don't believe so. I think, I believe the platoon leader actually got a letter of reprimand and the company commander also did as well. And was it for the for this incident or for other things? So it was for this incident and then also a following incident, which was not a war crime, at least on their part, but in somewhat probably not, but it was later claimed to be in retaliation for this. Oh right, right. This unit was hit again, and not only were soldiers killed, two were abducted, uh taken alive, and were killed on propaganda video. Yeah, and, and things were, like that. Bodies were and rigged so, up as bombs and stuff. And that's actually, and because it was the same platoon, that's what caused the news story about this to come out. And that, so it's conjunction with both of those events, which is why the platoon leader and company commander both got letters recommend reprimand for. You know, and that's the. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Um, because it's kind of gone down in popular memory that that was in response um, to the rapes and the murders. And it doesn't seem, it seems like retroactively they made it in response. Um, I think the attack, uh, which I can remember, was it uh, Christian Menchaca and and one of the other soldiers' name is escaping me, who were uh, captured. Um, but when you look at at their battle strategy of leaving one Humvee with like three dudes in it on a street corner for 24 hours, it was, this was only a matter of time before it happened. Um, right. Like taking, taking soldiers alive is just a thing. I'm sure they, the Al Qaeda in Iraq was just planning to do. Um, Oh yeah, absolutely. and And the area itself is a hotbed. So it was likely to happen in that area with the same unit, just by statistical, happenstance but it was after the things came out because there's a propaganda video about it and they're like yeah we caught these soldiers and things and then months later they released another version of it that said yes we did this because of the rape and killings even, Although even though like, they didn't come out first and say that 
Right. So it was like the investigation was made world news and stuff. Did they say that? So it probably was not related, but who's to say? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's hard to, you know, I went into this admittedly when I, and when you recommended black hearts to me, um, thinking that this was going to, uh, be like another Haditha incident where like you almost can go like in Haditha, you can feasibly go all the way up to, um, uh, Mattis for possibly knowing and, and not saying anything about it. And I don't think like, I, I kind of expected that here too, because this is, you know, well, this is huge. Right. And then I read the book and then I realized, um, it was really, it would feasibly be very, very easy for someone to carry out horrific crimes if they're surrounded by horrific violence and get away with it. Um, and I don't know how that's never dawned on me before. Uh, maybe I'm naive, but um, the book uh, is outstanding. And if anybody who's listening hasn't read it yet, I cannot recommend it enough. It's probably the best recent military history books I've ever read. Um, one of the, Easily one of the best on the global war and terror for sure. Um, but, uh, thank you so much for, uh, adding your firsthand, uh, account with talking to these guys. Um, I definitely never would have had this opportunity myself. Yeah. I'm glad to talk about it <laughs> as terrible of a situation as it is. You know, it's, there's a reason we study this at places like West Point where it's like, Hey, this is a, this is what war crimes look like. Let's not do this. So it's very important that, you know. It gets talked about and it's known. Yeah, and an interesting footnote. Um, nowadays, I guess, Watt talks at West Point of, on ethics and stuff like that, uh, which is good. Um, he definitely should. He knows a lot about it now. Yep. Um, but again, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Do you have anything that you would like to plug, like a Twitter or a Twitch or anything like that? Right, so I... And I stream sometimes on Twitch, but for the most part, you can find me at Twitter uh, at Miss Riley Guppers, which is MS underscore Riley underscore G-U-P-R-Z. I use that username for just about anything, including Twitch. So you can find me just by anywhere using that, but I'm primarily found on Twitter. Um, again, thank you so much. And I would gladly have you on uh, again, whenever we can make this work after four months of planning or however long it yeah, was. Yeah, I don't know how many months it was, but <laughs> it took a while, but we're here. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and uh, have a good one. Yeah, you too. Hi, this is Nate Bethay, and I'm the producer of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. This show is brought to you by Audible. And as it just so happens, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys and browse the selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys to get started.